Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight, as we mark the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we take a journey across this country to hear some of the best interviews aired today across the Chorus Radio Network and bring you diverse voices and perspectives about what the day signifies to them. We speak to freelance journalist Michelle Sisa about her investigative piece in McLean's magazine called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, a pretendian investigation, which looks into the due diligence or lack thereof done by educational institutions to verify Indigenous heritage as they try to hire more equitably. And what happens when questions are raised about those claims of Indigenous heritage and why it matters. But first, we speak with Nunavut NDP MP Lori Idloud about the impact of residential schools on northern communities and why reconciliation won't happen until basic rights such as housing, clean water, and affordable food are better met. Let's start in Ottawa at a national ceremony where Canada's first Indigenous Governor General Mary Simon spoke, saying today is a day to reflect on the impact of the residential school system and the impact it still has on communities right across this country. Too many Indigenous communities suffer intergenerational trauma. To them I say, I see your pain. I believe your stories. And I believe in reconciliation as part of the healing journey. Mary Simon there earlier, the Prime Minister who stirred up a lot of controversy by skipping last year's events was in Niagara Falls, where he said the day is a reminder that all Canadians need to open their eyes to the truth of how this country evolved and came to be. The National Truth and Reconciliation Day holds space for every Canadian, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, to grapple with this part of our history, to honour those who lost their lives, and to think about ways each of us can support survivors and be better allies. Laurie Idlout has a seat in the House of Commons. She is the NDP MP for Nunavut. She attended a residential school, as did both her parents, and is acutely aware of the impact that that has had on her family and her community. But reconciliation is about more than the past. It's also about providing a better future. And that means pushing the federal government to address, to address chronic needs in the North, such as the need for better housing, clean water, and affordable food, because can you have reconciliation without guaranteeing those basic human needs? Lori Idloud is also the party's Northern Affairs critic, and she joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ben. As we mark uh, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, I know it's uh, you You too are a residential school survivor, as is your, your mom. Um, what does this day mean for you, do you think? How should we be thinking about it? We don't often talk about the North. We perhaps don't frequently enough talk about the North when we talk about reconciliation. Yes, for sure. So I I only went to a residential school for three months, but it was a very difficult three months. Uh, Both my parents uh, definitely had uh, longer experiences. And I feel like uh, having direct experience with uh, the impacts of intergenerational trauma uh, and continuing to see it Uh, being passed on to our later generations. Uh, September 30 is very important for me because we need to make sure that uh, we're starting the conversations about how to stop intergenerational trauma because we've been talking about healing uh, for generations now, but we're still needing to move from healing to ensuring that uh, we're passing on um, traditional knowledge, 
traditional uh, indigenous worldviews, uh, traditional laws. Those are the focus of what we need to start passing on to our uh, children and grandchildren rather than the intergenerational traumas that we're passing on to them now. You've been uh, very active in trying to make sure that that you bring a lot of your past um, to Parliament, both through your swearing-in ceremony. Through, uh, Do you feel like you, you've started the process of trying to pass on that that pride and that knowledge, not just to to people in the north, but also to the rest of us. Um, I, I think that that process had already started uh, years ago. I feel very lucky to have amazing role models, uh, and I know of the great work that started uh, decades ago by, for example, the uh, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. So. I think what I've been able to do is amplify the great work that has already started. And I feel very privileged to be able to keep that message going forward. Yeah, How far do you think we've come and how far do you think we have to go? I mean, I know, I know there's, there's, there's been lots, you know, we have a national day now. Um, there's been lots of people talking about things, but it feels like we still have a ways to go as well, specifically when it comes to understanding the full complexities of it, especially with the North, for instance, which, again, I don't feel like we talk about very much or at least not enough. Mm-hmm. We do still have a lot of uh, ways to go. Uh, too many uh, of us that are Indigenous, whether it's Inuit, Métis or First Nations, we're still facing and experiencing systemic racism on a daily basis. Um, the colonial laws and policies uh, are not history. They are not something that are to be talked about as of in the past tense. Uh, we're still being impacted by them today. So there's still a lot of work to do uh, to ensure that more Canadians un- just understand uh, that they too uh, are victims of this system by them. Uh, and the, the way, the reason I say that is because they've been robbed of this history as well. Uh, they've been robbed of not be, not realizing just the atrocities that we've been forced to experience. So uh, over the last few years, uh, I've received a lot of empathy from everyday Canadians, and I'm at the point where I need to start discussing how to turn that empathy into action. Yeah, that's, a, you know, I, you're right. I think maybe the time for apologies continues, but but also it feels like there's a time for, you know, the time for reckoning is, is maybe still there, but also there's a time for action. And what do you think that looks like? Uh, I, I think that uh, it looks like many different things, uh, some of which include uh, implementing the great work that has already been put together, uh, great works by uh, uh, Indigenous-led works uh, through uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the MMIWG Commission. Uh, there's also been uh, regional um, works like the Kikitani Truth Commission. So there's been a lot of work uh, to make sure that uh, indigenous histories are being collected. And there's been a lot of discussions by indigenous people. Indigenous people have done the research. They have uh, collected 
information, that collection is still necessary. But I feel that uh, what we have been doing our part to make sure that uh, more Canadians understand uh, why rela- our relationship with Canada is so important. Uh, I-, I think now uh, the ball is in the federal government's court, in the provinces and territories courts, to make sure that we're all doing better to uh, uh make sure that reconciliation comes from both perspectives. Tell me a bit about justice, because I know you've been active in trying to extradite um, uh, Oblate Priest Johannes Rivoir. Um, and, and there's obviously some, there's justice that needs to be seen, too. How do you feel that that fits in? Uh, that uh, That is just one of the pieces of, I, I guess, what I could call uh, a huge puzzle uh, of reconciliation that needs to happen. Uh, I have the almost daily conversations with one of his victims uh, who who tells me um, her personal stories and how, for example, every every week uh, she hates Sundays because those were the days in her childhood that she was assaulted. Uh, very badly and so she still suffers to this day uh, just every week coming to Sunday and so um, justice is so necessary and there's not enough that I can ever do uh, I'm, I'm still I'm working hard to make sure that we do uh, uh, hope that she gets a sense of justice that she deserves um, I've been working, for example, with a French MP in Paris. Uh, I've also started talking with uh, the Inuit organization, Inuit Tapere and we all just really need to make sure that we're all working together uh, to persuade the French government uh, to make sure that uh, justice is done because currently they are protecting this criminal uh, in their country. My guest this half hour is Nunavut MP Lori Idlaut. She is uh, talking to us today on National Truth and Reconciliation Today about uh, about her thoughts about reconciliation, both the need to discuss, the need for justice. She too briefly attended a residential school, but her parents did, her community. She knows the trauma that was suffered in those schools. Uh, One of the issues that you've been touching on a lot recently that I find really interesting is just about water. Obviously, Calweath, we know, has had a water issue, uh, food security, uh, the Nutrition North program, where food that is sent north but often arrives in conditions that we would not consider to be acceptable. Can you have reconciliation properly if you don't address some of these very basic needs like housing and food and water? The very simple answer to that is no. Uh, Arctic communities, uh, especially the ones that I represent, uh, have been ignored uh, are the investments to ensure our infrastructure uh, has been neglected neglected for too long. Uh, we saw that, as you mentioned, in Iqaluit, uh, where the NDP, through its confidence agreement, was able to get the Liberals to agree uh, to uh, fund provide funds to the city of Iqaluit uh, uh, for $217 million. Um, to improve its water infrastructure. 
there are still many communities in Nunavut, like Rankin Inlet, uh, that is uh, struggling to keep with keep up with its uh, water uh, needs. Uh, they their water infrastructure is uh, outdated by decades, and they've been trying to flag uh, both to territorial and federal government their dire need to have their water infrastructure updated and that's uh, and I'm sure there are many more uh every community that I've been to since I started campaigning uh and since I got elected have talked to me about the nutrition north program they've talked to me about the high cost of food and just how uh the program is not working to make sure that uh, nutritious food arrives uh, still edible and uh, affordable for my communities in Nunavut. You found, uh, because you looked into this, that not only is the food arriving in conditions that wouldn't be considered acceptable, it's also not being tracked. So we actually don't know um, what kind of food is, we don't know how much bad food is arriving in the North as part of this program, which is meant to provide affordable, nutritious food to communities where food can often be prohibitively expensive. Correct. Uh, it was quite disappointing uh, when I, I've been asking the Minister of Northern Affairs uh, since my election about the Nutrition North program. And the more responses that I get from him, the more obvious it is that the department has no idea what's going on. They're leaving that responsibility to a to uh, for profit corporations that are benefiting uh, uh, from these subsidies that are meant to uh, help communities instead is going to the hands of uh, uh, corporations that are showing uh, uh, major profits uh, all these years. One of the things I found interesting about how you framed it too is you've talked to this about uh, not just as something about you know about sustainability in the communities that you represent about reconciliation. You've also talked about this as a question of Arctic security, which I think is a topic that many people are talking about today. How do you see that? So, if Arctic security is is to be efficient, uh, it has to invest in the peoples and the environment. So, for example, um, if Inuit are to be engaged in the security of their lands, they need to have lived in not uh, overcrowded housing, not in molded housing situation uh, where they uh, don't need to sleep in shifts uh, to decide which family member will sleep on which bed. Uh, they need to be able to uh, know that they can fly in and fly out uh, uh, safely. Uh, all of my 25 communities are fly in and fly out communities. So airports are very important for our communities. And if the conditions of the airports, uh, including the terminals, are not sufficient, then there there would be challenges to ensure that they are secure. So the investments uh, in Arctic security need to include making sure that uh, Inuit and Nunavumut uh, have the resources to be engaged in that uh, uh, Arctic security, especially if Canada is going to continue to assert sovereignty over the Arctic, it must make sure that it's investing in the people and the lands that are there. Laurie Idlout, thank you so much for your time tonight.
thank you so much, Ben. Well, we're marking the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation today. Truth and Reconciliation Commission head Murray Sinclair is urging Canadians to pause and reflect today to remember Indigenous survivors of the residential school system and the children who never made it out. Sinclair says Indigenous people are in a constant state of grieving and are still feeling the effects of the system even today. Our country's history is complicated and it is not always easy to review. But you don't make it better by ignoring it or glossing over it. We must all recognize that the Indian residential school system is not just something for your history books. It is something that Indigenous peoples are still feeling the effects of each and every day. Sinclair says Canadians should strive to carry out the TRC's calls to action and resolve to do better. He made the comments at a national commemorative gathering in Ottawa, attended by both the Prime Minister and the Governor-General today. Now, one of those 94 calls to action from the TRC was that the federal government must eliminate the education gap between Indigenous people and other Canadians. Many universities have embraced that call by increasing Indigenous representation in their institutions. Uh, increasing the percentage isn't easy, since Indigenous people are also underrepresented in graduate programs, which often produces faculty members. And the result has been some really fierce competition amongst universities who seek to attract Indigenous candidates by you know, trying to do more decreasing barriers, such as academic qualifications or prior, prior teaching experience. Uh, cluster hiring, that's the process of recruiting multiple faculty members at the same time, is a popular strategy as well uh, as uh, universities are eager to demonstrate their commitment to reconciliation. But that also leaves universities in Canada reckoning with how to verify Indigenous heritage as they try to hire more equitably. And what do they do when someone's claim of Indigenous heritage is called into question? Well, that's the entire basis of a story the cover story in this month's McLean magazine. And joining me now is Michelle Sisa. She's a freelance journalist and journalist and author of that cover story in McLean's called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, A Pretendian Investigation. Michelle, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I guess just to start at the beginning, because we're talking a lot about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission today, um, there was a call to action to improve uh, representation, Indigenous representation in universities and colleges. And I, I imagine they've responded to that. And that's uh, that's part of what we're seeing here. Yes, they definitely have. So one of the major ways that universities um, have responded to the call is by trying to increase representation of faculty members who are Indigenous, as well as the number of Indigenous students. So that's taken a lot of forms, but one of them is through um, cluster hiring, where there's an effort to hire multiple faculty members at once who identify as Indigenous, which is something that my former employer, Emily Carr, engaged in, as well as many other universities in Canada. I guess, I mean, how effective has it been? Because it is difficult to try to hire a lot of people all at once, no matter who you're trying to hire. Yeah, and there's there's other barriers too, or hurdles, I guess you could say, with uh, hiring Indigenous people. And one of them is that, um, you know, about 5% of the Canadian population identifies as Indigenous, but Indigenous people have been underrepresented in academia for a long time. So there's not as many Indigenous PhD students or graduate students, and that means there's not as many who are graduating um, who are qualified to be faculty members. So when every university in Canada is scrambling to hire Indigenous faculty and there's a limited supply, uh, you run into a problem, a supply and demand problem, um, which I think a lot of universities have encountered. And it's led to some strange outcomes. <laughs> 
which is the topic of my story. Yes, I was going to say, as your investigation points out, there are gaps when it comes to due diligence, perhaps, but specifically on how to respond if there are questions uh, that arise. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think a lot of universities um, implemented these cluster hiring processes by doing a self-identification requirement. So candidates who identified as Indigenous could apply for these roles. Um, And self-identification has been kind of the way that Indigenous people are counted in Canada for a long time. It's how the Statistics Canada, like census, um, identifies Indigenous people. And for a long time, it made sense because there weren't many benefits to being Indigenous for most of Canadian history. And for many Indigenous people, there's still very few benefits. But since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released their report and their recommendations, there have been some concerted efforts to um, improve conditions for Indigenous people. And there have been opportunities presented that are specific for self-identified Indigenous people. Um, And so the system of self-identification worked really well when there wasn't really much to get out of it. But I think one of the problems is once you start incentivizing something, particularly if it's something like a faculty job at a university, which is very hard to get, very competitive, it does incentivize people to tick that box, even if their claim might be a little bit fuzzy, or I think in some cases, outright fictitious. I should mention to listeners, you are a member of the Muskie Cree Lake First Nation. Um, you understand the complex, you grew up in Vancouver, you understand the complexities around identity and so forth. So I imagine you walked into this one with a lot of different thoughts and, 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 and sort of inquisitive, inquisitive nature to try to figure out what was going on here. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, so I'm a member of the Muskie Lake Cree Nation, which is in Treaty 6, but I grew up in Vancouver. Um, and so I have the, the fairly common experience of being both mixed race and and raised off reserve. And I think like a lot of Indigenous people, I grew up feeling a bit disconnected from my culture and also just not really sure if I counted as an Indigenous person because the, the media depictions of Indigenous people I saw, the ideas that people had about Indigenous people, they didn't ever seem like they reflected my experience. Um, you know, there still, there weren't very nuanced depictions of Indigenous people in the media at all when I was growing up and there's still not a ton out there. Um, and I didn't really know a lot of other Cree people in Vancouver. So I, I often felt for a lot of my youth, like maybe I wasn't really indigenous enough to call myself indigenous even like maybe it wasn't, um, an identity that belonged to me. And I think that's a common experience. And that's also an ambiguity that I think gets exploited a little bit in some of these instances of people pretending to be Indigenous is they're using these common narratives of feeling disconnected or of being white passing to give their story some legitimacy. Um, And I think that is something that I brought to reporting the story and to this experience is I, I had that insight as well as um, some understanding of what it's like to come from a family where, you know, your your cultural connections are disrupted by things like residential school and by dislocation. So when you set out on this, uh, I mean, you were working at this at this institution, Emily Carr, when, when this happened, what had what did you set out to find? I mean, what happened and what did you set out to find? Well, when I was working at Emily Carr, um, there was a process of hiring a group of Indigenous faculty, which at the time I was really excited about. I mean, I didn't have a lot of Indigenous faculty 
teaching me when I was in school. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I was really excited about it. And, um, and I think most people at Emily Carr would agree. It was a great initiative. It was a really well-meaning initiative. And then one of the faculty members who was hired, Gina Adams, who is an artist from Maine in the United States, um, about a year and a half after she was hired, there was an anonymous Twitter account called No More Red Face, <clears throat> which was dedicated to calling out people whose claims maybe didn't stand up to scrutiny. And that account posted a thread about Gina Adams claiming that the story she told, which was that her grandfather was Ojibwe from the White Earth Nation in Minnesota, and that he'd been taken to residential school, and that that was her, you know, the source of her Indigenous identity, that he was actually a white man who was from Massachusetts. And it was a pretty shocking allegation. It came kind of on the heels of a lot of other big stories that listeners might be familiar with. So Michelle Latimer, mm-hmm. um, a few other faculty members at different universities had been called out earlier that year. And it really felt like there were these scandals <laughs> happening everywhere. It was this really strange time where it just seemed like every university was grappling with this publicly or not. And, you know, as someone who worked at Emily Carr, I was really interested to see how the university would respond. And I think what was surprising to me um, and disappointing was that there really wasn't much of a response. It seemed like nobody knew what to do with this rumor. There was no process in place to address it. And so nothing happened for a long time. Lots of people asked questions and those questions were just kind of dismissed. The issue got swept under the rug. Um, And I ended up leaving that job earlier this year in February. And after that, I, I just decided to try and figure out myself if it was true. Um, and I didn't feel like I was in conflict anymore because I no longer worked at the university. So I didn't feel obligated to protect their reputation the same way. And so I did my own investigation um, and tried to replicate the, the findings that had been shared on Twitter. And I ended up finding uh, a lot of information about Gina Adams and her family that was pretty surprising. My guest is Michelle Sisa. She's a freelance journalist and author of this month's cover story in McLean's called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, a pretendian investigation. We've been talking about uh, the rush uh, that uh, Canadian institutions, uh, uh, educational institutions have been under to try and find more Indigenous staff. It is difficult, uh, but it's also led to a lot of good things, but also led to some conflicts and just how ill-equipped at times these institutions are to deal with these questions about identity that arise. So you went out to find out more about what Gina Adams was all about. And you did come across, uh, I mean, you in the article spells it out beautifully, you did come across some contradictions. Yes. And I mean, I, I do want to say, I think it's a really delicate thing to ask somebody about their identity. And, you know, Indigenous people have really, a lot of them been disconnected from their families and cultures um, through things like the 60s scoop, through residential school, through all of these deliberate efforts of colonialism. And as a result, a lot of people don't know what community they come from, you know, what their family background is. And so I I was really cognizant of that while working on this story. And I, I really don't want the takeaway to be that people should start investigating every Indigenous person, you know, who doesn't look Indigenous enough or doesn't resonate with their idea of what an Indigenous person should be. But yeah. in this case, there were a lot of a lot of questions that seem like they should be straightforward to answer um, with no answers forthcoming. So Gina Adams' story was that her grandfather had been born on the White Earth Nation, 
that he was taken to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, um, and that he then changed his name and entire identity and passed as a white man named Albert Terrio for the rest of his life. And I thought that was a pretty um, unlikely story in some ways that someone could change their identity so completely and not leave a trace of who they used to be. And so I started by just looking for her grandfather um, in the in the public record. So I made an ancestry.com profile. I looked yeah. at newspaper clippings and I found a lot of information about him. Um, and, you know, one thing that was pretty surprising was that none of it was very hard to find. So I found his birth certificate. I found his parents, um, you know, his father's World War One draft card. I found information about his siblings, his brother's obituary, all kinds of stuff. I found newspaper clippings about Gina Adams' family. And I think what was really shocking is that there, there was just this huge abundance of information that was easy to find that showed pretty definitively that her grandfather was not born on the White Earth Nation. Um, and, you know, family histories are complicated, but the story as she told it was pretty straightforward to disprove. And I, I think that there are people who've been adopted into First Nations who have complicated histories, but I really believe in tribal sovereignty and that each nation has the right to determine its membership. And so I did speak to the White Earth Nation um, and they confirmed that she's not in their membership records. Nobody in her family is, you know, they'd never heard of her. She'd never contacted them. So as far as they knew, she had no connections to the tribe. And a lot of people have ambiguous family histories. They have rumors about, you know, being Native American or having indigenous descent somewhere in the family tree. Um, and I, I recognize that it's sometimes hard for people to figure out if that's true or just a family story, but there's, there's ways to, uh, to try and reconcile that part of yourself and figure out that family history. Um, but I think it's really careful that, or really important that people, you know, not appropriate someone else's trauma or family history, um, saying that your grandparent went to residential school you know, when they were a white man born in Massachusetts is a pretty big and troubling lie to tell. Yeah. I, I mean, the institution obviously had had trouble dealing with this. What ultimately happened? Well, for a long time, nothing happened. I think they they spoke to Gina and she had a story about her version of events, which was that, you know, her grandfather didn't have any records. Nobody even knew the name he was born under when he was born on the White Earth nation so there was no way for her to prove her story but she said it's absolutely true and they accepted that explanation um and you know it's kind of hard to say why why they did that um i think it might have been a combination of you know that she was a respected colleague and by all accounts a really great teacher and i think some of it was just a problem that reoccurs in a lot of these well-meaning initiatives which is that there's a lot of people who don't have much of an understanding of indigenous identity or history. So they want to do the right thing, but they don't, they don't have enough of a nuanced understanding of, you know, what indigenous communities are, what indigenous identity means. And so they make mistakes. And I think that's what happened here. Um, but ultimately Gina Adams remained employed until shortly before the story was published. So after McLean's reached out to the university um, for fact checking before the article's publication, uh, and between that that fact checking contact and the publication of the article a month later, Gina Adams resigned. 
in the grander scheme of things, and because it's so, you know, we're just at the beginning of this, and and it is very difficult to establish one, you know, to to check people's identity. You know, you mentioned it yourself, but in the grander scheme of things, there is something at play here about truth and reconciliation, how it works, and good intentions and bad outcomes. So what do you think that is? I mean, I think it's that people have to accept that they might make mistakes as we undergo this process of reconciliation. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the harder thing to reckon with, right? Is, is that you, you want to do the right thing. Maybe you want to make more space for indigenous people in universities, but if you make a mistake and you hire someone who is presenting their identity in a way that's not true, if they're appropriating a role that was meant for an indigenous person, that's a mistake. And, and universities need to be accountable to that. And I think that's that's kind of the hardest part, right? Nobody wants to make those errors. Nobody wants to inadvertently say something that's offensive or racist. Um, and there's kind of a paralysis, I think, that sets in when people are so afraid of doing the wrong thing that they just stop acting altogether. So hiring Indigenous people <laughs> seems like a straightforward good thing. But then when mistakes are made, there has to be a process to deal with it. Um, and I did talk to some people in my story, including Jacqueline Ottman, who's the president of First Nations University and who co-chaired the first National Indigenous Identity Forum. And I also talked to Jean Tia, who's a Métis lawyer, who's uh, done a lot of work in this area. And they both emphasized, you know, there has to be accountability to the community. So Indigenous people have questions about someone's identity. Those need to be answered. We shouldn't be investigating everybody. We shouldn't be asking people to prove themselves on demand. But there has to be some kind of accountability to a community. That's that's a lot of what Indigenous identity is. You belong to a nation, you belong to a people, and you're responsible to them. Um, you can't be Indigenous in isolation. It's not you know, like hair color, or eye color, it's not just a trait that describes you. It's a living relationship. And I think that's something that hasn't necessarily been well understood by institutions. And it's a learning process. And I hope that they'll be willing to go on that journey and keep learning and growing in their efforts. Well, Michelle Sisa, thank you so much. Um, it was a fantastic and very informative article. I would suggest people read it. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. You can read Michelle Cease's piece in the October edition of McLean's, which is on newsstands now. You can always visit mclean's.ca for daily updates. A lot of people don't know what's happening with us. A lot of people don't understand it. They might ask questions. Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world. And having an event like this is really important for not only tourists and immigrants or newcomers, but the whole city to see the presence and the true history of this land that that we're a part of. That was an Indigenous legacy gathering in Toronto today at the Toronto Council Fire Native Cultural Centre. Um, again, we're going to bring you conversations from right across the Chorus Radio Network today about the meaning of truth and reconciliation on the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. There were a lot of fascinating chats going on right across uh, the network, and we'll bring you the best of them. Let's begin in Toronto, where 640 News host Greg Brady spoke with NDP MPP So Mamakwa about what the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation means to him, whether anything has changed for the younger Indigenous generation and why there are still boil water advisories in parts of Ontario, even now. NDP MPP Saul Mamakwa joins us on the show. We always enjoy our conversations, but this is an important day, a very real day. And Saul, 
makes this time for us and you, the Toronto Today audience, to talk about issues in his riding, in the Indigenous landscape, and whether or not we're moving towards a better place. Is it one step forward, one step back sometimes? We'll talk to Saul about all of that next. I think we're further along in the conversation. I know you you made the point yesterday saying um, without you can't reconcile without truth. So I think we're getting to the point where the truth is being taught in our schools. The truth is more in conversations that people like me are having with our parents uh, and, and talking about what was missed, what wasn't spotted, what people turned a blind eye to intentionally or not. So I think we're even further along than we were last year. And we've got to keep digging and getting at this year by year. Yes, uh, certainly. I think uh, we moved, uh, you know, um, a needle a bit, uh, you know, the, uh, the reconciliation needle, uh, just because of the uh, the visit from the uh, the historic uh, penitential uh, pilgrimage to Canada by Pope Francis. And and I think, uh, you know, that moved uh, a needle a little bit just because of the, uh, uh, you know, that visit itself, uh, the apology itself. And but uh, we have to understand that there's uh, challenges uh, which lie ahead of our uh, collective journey to healing, uh, to reconciliation, but uh, and also eventual forgiveness. And and I think that's um, uh, you know uh, the people that saw that uh, is only a first step into a, a long journey together. So mm. yeah, today. Uh, Again, is uh, Orange Shirt Day. It's a national day for truth and reconciliation. You know, uh, this is the second uh, uh, year that we've had, uh, and uh, that's a time to um, reflect. I read your statement from yesterday. I always think of you as a politician that wants to to do do things rather than just say things. And and the machinery of government, the machinery of politics gets in the way of that um, sometimes. And, and I'm sure you worry and I worry. There's too many people into um, the world of politics that would prefer to say things as opposed to doing things. But you make the point yesterday, admitting to wrongdoing in the face of undeniable evidence is not reconciliation. Performative acts of apology are not reconciliation. And, and you're right. The Pope being here made a difference to people. Maybe that was something unthinkable that was going to happen last September at this time. But it's but it's not everything. We need to know more. We need you know records. We need uh, we need to make sure that that we understand exactly what was done, as opposed to just a, a blanket apology. Yes, I think that, that there's not there needs to be uh, more done uh, in here in the province of Ontario, but also the uh, uh, this country of Canada. Uh, and I think uh, if we go back to the uh, the truth and reconciliation calls to action. If you read those uh, nine to four calls to action, you you will see how the opportunities uh, that are there to invest uh, in those uh, you know calls to action. And uh, I think that you know I think the political will uh, has not been there to invest in the, those action items. So, and I think uh, again we have to understand too, like here in Ontario, we haven't like some. Um, the, there were 18 sites in um, uh, Indian residential school sites in Ontario. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the one in uh, uh, Mohawk College, uh, I mean, in New Brantford is the one yeah. that has started searching. But, uh, you know, we, we're still searching. And, and I think that there's so much we can do. And uh, uh, with regards to, uh, you know, just saying things. And, and then I think, 
You want to be able to change the trajectory of the thinking of the people that make these decisions in, uh, across Canada, across uh, the municipalities, across uh, the regions, uh, the governments as well, right? Like, and I think that's mm-hmm. the intent of sometimes of my messaging. NDP MPP Salma Makwa, kind enough to join us. Um, you're right. Seven years ago, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission federally releases its final report, and there's 94 calls to action, and it's been documented. We've covered about 10% of those calls. And even Mark, you know, when Mark Miller says this is moving too slowly, he's right. Um, what gets it moving faster? What expedites some of these calls to action? What It's more than just political will, isn't it? Although that's a big part of it. Well, I think that's one of the things, too, is, uh, you know, uh, they have to be, that political will has to come with uh, some resourcing and investing into those calls to action. And I know uh, sometimes uh, politicians say the good words that they people need to hear, that they put us in the same, they think in the same place where, where, whereby they talk about colonialism, where they talk about oppression and how it impacts the, the, the lives and the health of Indigenous people in this case. Uh, so, but that's what uh, it's been. It's been done before, whereby uh, you know colonial uh, systems, colonial governments have continued to say that. And, but I think uh, again, actions are more uh, uh, actions and uh, resources are what we need into these investments. And so we come, so we can come together as a, you know uh, as a better uh, a better Ontario, a better uh, Canada, uh, essentially a better a better Canada and a, a better society. That's that's what we all need here, and then we're all after the same. We're all after the same thing. Some may view this as a loaded question, but it's a really honest question for you. And I've thought about it. Is this now a better time with what we're acknowledging, with how we're moving forward, for a young Indigenous person, maybe in your riding, maybe where I live? Is this a better time? Maybe, unfortunately, there's not there's not a lot of great things to compare it to. Is it one of the better times? that we can think of to be young and indigenous and and independent and knowing the whole world is in front of you and so many more people want to help people achieve their goals and dreams. Are we in a much better place than we have been in previous decades? I think uh, acknowledging, uh, you know, uh, acknowledging the Indian residential schools and and its intergenerational impacts uh, is one piece, but I think uh, we have to understand we have to understand that there's still uh, uh, oppressive and colonial systems, policies, uh, and actions that keep on happening. And, you know, like I, I still have uh, 14 long-term boil water advisories in my writing. And, you know, is that a better time? I don't know. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, that's a very, uh, you know, loaded question. And, um, you know, and I think uh, we need to be able to uh, come to understand on, and the backyard of Canada on what's happening, whereby some of the First Nations are living in third world conditions. And I think we have to acknowledge that as well. Oh, yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think that's that, uh, you know, uh, it is like it is a it is a better time than, you know, uh, what we say 10 years ago, a little bit. Just, just uh, you know, just a needle. You know, like I think it's about it's not about stepping forward, but it's about changing the where you're looking like, um, you know, changing the trajectory of the thinking of looking, um, you know, about uh, three, four degrees or whatever, like that, that is change. And I think if uh, I always say that uh, when I, I do these interviews, because if I can change one person's mind or at least not change, but at least uh, made a, some, somebody's made aware, uh, and if I can change uh, one person's uh, 
uh, awareness of uh, Indian residential schools in its impacts, I think I would have made change. And that's how I, and that's why I do interview these kind of type of interviews. When you tell me there's 14 boil water advisories, I'm not shocked. And I should be, Saul. I should, if I told you there were 14 boil water advisories where I live, you'd be shocked. So I should be shocked that there are where you are. And it's wrong that I'm not. And it's an absolute, yeah, it's, it's a bucket of, of water to the face of all of us that this is still the case. So yeah, we all want to provide better for our children than our parents were able to provide. That's always the goal when you are a kid moving into the next generation. And there must be parents looking at their kids right now going, I, you know, it's not getting done and there's nothing I can do about it. And it's terrible. That's 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 wrong. Yes, exactly. And I think that's, uh, you know, just imagine if uh, <laughs> where you live, uh, just imagine if, uh, the, you know, two or three blocks did not have uh, uh, clean drinking water for like decades. And, uh, you know, like the longest one mm. is at uh, uh, on its 28th year. And um, I was talking to this uh, you know, young mother up in the north and, uh, you know, like she's having to buy water, bottled water. Yeah. For her two-year-old boy to bathe, bathe him, and to for the skin, skin to clear up, and you know, and that's something that people don't know that it's happening today in in Ontario and in Canada. It's a it's a different Canada. It's a different Ontario. It seems it shouldn't go. It shouldn't go on this long. It shouldn't go on much longer. It shouldn't go on another day longer. And this is why. Again, I thank you for making the time for our show. I want to have more conversations on more days of the week in more months of the year than obviously just today. Thanks for uh, for your trust and, and for you coming on our show every time. You're always welcome. Miigwech uh, for having me. Thank you. When I was on my book tour in 2018, I was looking at a picture of my family and I realized something. I have a saying that life can be understood backward but must be lived forward. And I was looking at that picture and I realized that for the first time in five generations, children in my family, my grandchildren are being raised by their mother and their father. Granny, mom, me, and my son didn't have that because of residential school. You may recognize that voice. That's residential school survivor Phyllis Webstad. Of course, it was her story about wearing a brand new orange shirt to a residential school in BC in 1973 that she would never see again that turned into Orange Shirt Day. Her experience was the creation of why we're wearing orange shirts today. As an adult, she also founded the Orange Shirt Society to raise awareness about the lasting effects of residential schools. One of the topics covered today on the Chorus Radio Network was how Métis people have been primarily left out of the discussion around residential schools in this country. 990 CHML Hamilton host Rick Zamprin spoke with Hank Rowlandson, who's chair of the Métis Nation of Ontario on Good Morning Hamilton today. Hank Rowlandson is our next guest. Hank is the chair of the Métis Nation of Ontario, and he joins us now. Hank, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you, Rick? I'm great. How does, or maybe what does, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you? When you reflect on this day, what comes to mind? I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's about listening and learning. Uh, It's an opportunity for all Canadians to consider what each of us can do to advance reconciliation with Indigenous people and to recommit understanding the truth of our shared history. You know, this is a day that honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families and communities. So a public uh, commemoration of the tragic and painful history is an ongoing uh, impact of residential schools, uh, which is a vital component of the reconciliation process. Is it, I'm not, I'm not sure if comforting is the word to use, but I'll, I'll use it. Is it comforting to know 
that more Canadians are listening and learning through this process? Well, I'm going to be quite honest. From my perspective, yes. Uh, I'll give you a prime example. Is uh, Not too long ago, my uh, daughter wrote an essay uh, on residential school. She uh, was in a Catholic school and uh, was given a failing grade because the teacher didn't believe that this actually happened until uh, the federal government offered their apology. Uh, she then apologized to my daughter and regraded her essay. But this is a teacher in our school system that had no clue about the residential schools. So uh, again, talking and learning about residential schools, that it did happen, it did affect people, uh, you know, their, their parents, their grandparents, and the inner general, uh, generational trauma that it's uh, created uh, for Aboriginal people across uh, Canada is uh, something that people really need to do. When it comes to Canada's residential school system, not much has been made, at least I haven't heard a lot of, of how Métis people were impacted. What, what can you tell us? Well, uh, the Métis experience of residential schools has long been misunderstood or ignored. However, it is indisputable that countless Métis children attended residential schools. Uh, and there was actually residential schools that, that were built specifically for Métis children. An example of that would be uh, uh, La Crosse in Alberta. And, you know, especially here in Ontario, too, because they weren't part of the federal system, uh, a lot of our... Uh, Métis children went to uh, residential schools that were run by the provincial government. Well, there's there's no doubt about it. Métis people are resilient. I think that's a word that comes to mind. Yes, very resilient. And, uh, you know, we're working with other uh, Aboriginal people throughout Canada with all levels of government to try to uh, make sure that the Métis are uh, included in the discussions. You know, they may not be as... uh, widely impacted as uh, the First Nation were with regard to numbers, but they definitely attended and they definitely were impacted. Um, It wasn't too long ago that Pope Francis was uh, here in Canada and uh, offered an apology for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system. What what did that apology mean to you and and how do we move forward? we uh, we sent a delegation to uh, to Alberta for the papal visit, um, and they were either residential school survivors or descendants of residential school survivors. And the Pope's apology uh, will mean different things to each survivor. Uh, you know, to me, I want to see uh, what comes out of the apology. I know the Pope made some promises, some recommendations, and. Uh, uh, I, I will, I guess I, I, I'm waiting to see what happens. Uh, an apology is an apology, but without action, it means nothing. But like I said, uh, each individual survivor, maybe that's all they needed was the apology, the recognition that it happened, the uh, Catholic Church taking responsibility, and it may be their uh, first opportunity to start healing. What kind of action would you like to see? Well, Definitely, uh, from a uh, Canadian government perspective anyways, uh, immediately implement the remaining TRC calls to action uh, with particular attention to Volume 4 of the final report. Uh, from a Métis perspective, commit uh, to a pro- uh, process of engaging Métis governments across uh, Canada to ensure 
to make the experience with uh, within the residential boarding and day school is finally told and addressed. Um, you know, fully implement Jordan's principle. Uh, you know, they they've started. Uh, this is the second year of truth and reconciliation so they started a national holiday which is good because like i said it uh, creates awareness and education around the residential school system and the atrocities that it's caused uh but i i think we should be talking about it year round just not on september 30th absolutely i've always said there there can be a lot more done in this regard and and why not start in school and and teach kids when they're young about what has happened and how it's impacted so many people exactly it's all about education and uh like i said i know when i went to grade school and high school it definitely wasn't in the curriculum that uh, i was taught same here and that's unfortunate we really have to change that narrative hank really appreciate your time today thanks for joining us and uh, we'll continue to listen and continue to learn as well thank you rick greatly appreciate it thank you for your time bringing you some of the best conversations on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation from across the Chorus Radio Network today. Uh, we've been to Hamilton, Toronto. We'll go back to Toronto, but this really this is a story about Montreal. Mohawk artist Weiler Dio Montour decided this year he would do something very visible in his community of Ganawage near Montreal to honor residential school survivors and kids who never returned home. He proposed designing bright orange crosswalks. Now, he's a design school graduate. He spoke to his dad, who works at the Mohawk Council there, and uh, the idea was a go. So yesterday, just under a dozen crosswalks throughout the community, most surrounding the local elementary school, were repainted bright orange with stencils of white eagle feathers. With more on the idea and the execution uh, Wyler Dio Montour spoke with AM640's Kelly Cutrera, host of the Kelly Cutrera Show today. So if you're, if you're standing at one end of the crosswalk, there's going to be a white line at either end of, of the crosswalk. Imagine the entire crosswalk is orange. In it, at a, at a slight angle, are seven eagle feathers as they go across. Is there so, a reason significance behind seven eagle feathers, or did that just fill up the space well when you're talking about design? If only it were just convenient, but uh, but it was seven. It's also discussing the the seven generations, which is uh, a, a teaching that we uh, that we live by. The okay, idea well, is teach us. Every everything that you're doing is for the seven generations before you and the seven generations to come after. So when when you're acting in in your life, okay, there, there's nothing that's ever going to be done just for yourself. It will always have an impact on those to come and an impact in reverence of those that have come before you. That's really powerful. What do you hope happens when people see or use this crosswalk? Again, there's the, the symbolism of it just being something that that is meant to, to guide children safely across the, the streets. Um, so the crosswalks that are painted are outside the schools in my community in Gunnawaga, just southwest of Montreal. And uh, again, orange being the color of the Every Child Matters movement as well, and such a significant color, not only in this community, but across all Indigenous communities in Turtle Island, is uh, it, it's a bright color that everyone can, can notice. And I, I said before that one of my favorite things about the color itself is in September when someone's wearing orange, I know why they're wearing it. What is Turtle Island? I think it's really important on this day of truth and reconciliation where we are supposed to listen and learn that everybody gets on the same page. Of course, Turtle Island is uh, 
North America as it is now. And the idea is that uh, it is built on the back, in, in the story is that it's built on the, uh, the the back of a very large snapping turtle, obviously, with uh, the size of North America right now. We We call our land here Turtle Island. What's the significance of the snapping turtle beyond being an aquatic and uh, a land animal? Uh, what, what's the significance in uh, indigenous culture? Well, I don't know if we have uh, enough time to really get into to the nitty-gritty of that, but if you, if you go back to the creation story, when Sky Woman came down to a, a planet covered in water, she uh, eventually ended up on, on the back of a turtle because one can only swim for so long. Mm. You need and, a bit of help. Exactly. And upon that, uh, the earth was laid and the white pine rose from the turtle's back. There are, there are many different iterations of the story, but uh, that's that's how I always imagined it in, in my mind. When you came up with this idea of the crosswalks and what they'd look like when I first started talking to you today, you kept referring to we. Who is we? Who else was discussing this project with you? Well, what, what I did is it was an initiative um, with the Mohawk Council of Ganawaga. And uh, the we that initially discussed it was actually my father and myself. So we, we were thinking of ways that uh, that we could pay homage and uh, to, to create a level of recognition uh, to honor those that never came back and from, from residential school and also those that did and were never and will never be the same. We collectively live with with intergenerational trauma from it, and uh, it, it it affects daily life. It's it's a very hard thing to overcome. But uh, as far as the design, we we wanted to do something that that would be visible. Sort of, you know, everyone had done flag, they'd done shirts, and we wondered what what might we be able to do that might be a little different, that might uh, might have people noticing things in their everyday life. And we stumbled across this idea. Now, my father works at the Mohawk Council of Ganawaga, and so I was able to, uh, to present the idea to him, and he could present the idea to his peers as well. And uh, luckily, everybody was on board with it, and we moved forward with it. When you talk about stumbling across an idea, uh, it had to germinate somewhere. Where was the moment where you went, aha, it's the crosswalk? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm not sure if there was any any single tangible moment. I think there was a my, my father was a very logical guy, so we <laughs> sort of discussed different ideas. What are, what are other people doing? What's been done? What do we what do we see every day? And uh, what do we see by the schools? What is what do the children see every day? And uh, and that's that that felt. It's perfect. There's so much symbolism in a crosswalk, really. And then you added more symbolism to that crosswalk in the most simplistic way. It's a beautiful thing what you've come up with here. Oh, exactly. I think it's uh, a lot of the most impactful art is is very simple, fundamentally. It's why uh, it's why generations upon generations love folk music and simple simple songs because they're they're easily recognized. You sing along, you recognize the significance in them. Things don't need to be complicated to, to get across a very complicated message, and that's that's what we have particularly today. And uh, if it can open a discussion towards uh, towards the honesty of what really happened in this country, it's uh, it's really just one small gesture, and 
but it can be a very important one. Again, discussions are, are the fuel for change, and we talk about truth and reconciliation, and it's very hard to achieve reconciliation without truth, and discussions are the only things that are going to get us there. Could you see this idea catching on in other communities just as the Rainbow Crosswalk did? Because I see the Rainbow Crosswalk uh, popping up in small towns. Can you see your uh, crosswalk, the Orange Crosswalk with the eagle feathers, um, catching on across Canada? I would love to see it catch on, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it just my crosswalk. Again, I, to be honest, I didn't expect to be doing any press for this at all, and it was never for that reason. Um, but again, anything that can catch on that will, that will have more people talking and towards really actionable change, I think, will be important. And if this is one manifestation of that, that that'd be beautiful, and I'd love to see that. Uh, I, I try to do the same thing in, in my music, and it's to, to, just fueling discussion. I think that's the ultimate, uh, the ultimate beauty of human interaction is the ability to be able to discuss anything and come to uh, conclusions from artwork and complicated conversations. And there are definitely complicated conversations to be had in this regard. Well, there were a sea of people dressed in orange today that took up about four city blocks as they gathered for the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg. Michael Redhead Champagne is an Indigenous activist in that city. He spoke with 680 CJOB uh, in Winnipeg's Greg Macklin, Brett McGarry, and Lauren McNabb on the start today about what he sees as the most pressing issue in the city, and that is the issue of Indigenous kids in care. Welcome back to the start, Michael. Great to speak with you. How are you today? Um, well, today's a really solemn day for me, and I think for many uh, Indigenous people that have family members or were personally affected by Indian residential schools, today is a very solemn day for us. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling pretty serious and uh, reflecting quite a bit today on where we're at well, in Winnipeg. Well, as I said to you in my text message this morning as I was crafting our, our segment, as we would say behind the scenes, I was like, It doesn't matter what I want to talk about. What does Michael want to talk about? So I sent you a text message and you said, hey, um, 94 uh, calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But there's one that's particularly important to you. Fair to say? Yeah. Well, Brett and I and and our our legions of of listeners uh, are going to sit back and listen to you talk and take it away. The microphone's yours, my friend. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for for thinking of uh, me and for having, I call that cultural humility when you are reflective of what's happening in the world around you and you recognize, hey, maybe somebody else could make a decision. So thank you um, for that. And the decision that I wanted to make today was to talk with uh, folks about Truth and Reconciliation Commission Calls to Action. Um, because the one thing that I've been hearing the most throughout this past week from non-Indigenous people is, what can we do to be good partners in reconciliation? And so um, I've been able to connect with a number of different groups this week, and I often will say to the folks that, um, you know, I, I will ask those groups, which Truth and Reconciliation Commission call to action are you working on as an individual? And then I'll go a bit bigger. What are you working on as a family? What are you working on as a workplace? And so that's a a common question that I've been asking folks. But 
frequently I'll get responses back from these groups that they actually haven't read the calls to action yet. And so what I want to just say to anyone who's asking, what can I do to be a partner in reconciliation? We have these beautiful documents of the national of national scope where indigenous families had to share their trauma and their pain um, from systems of family separation. And that refers to both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It also refers to the cost for justice from the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls inquiry. Um, it also includes the international document, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And so these documents hold within them uh, stories and pain and trauma that my relatives and Indigenous people have shared. And the recommendations have been crafted in such a way that non-Indigenous people can be organized and focused in the way that they react or take action in response to those calls. And so the number one call to action out of the 94 TRC calls to action is reduce the number of Indigenous children in care. And the amount of folks who don't know that that's the number one call to action is alarming to me, especially considering the fact that we are in the midst of what a lot of folks are calling the Every Child Matters movement. And so to me, if every child matters in a province like Manitoba, where there are 10,000 plus children in care, 90,000 of whom are Indigenous, then we got to get working on addressing child welfare. Um, TRC call to action number one, even as a city, applies to us because how many of the folks that are struggling with homelessness um, are have lived experience in both the child welfare system or are themselves Indian residential school survivors? Because those folks out there on the street are the children that made it home. So if every child matters, we got to take care of every child, the ones uh, in the unmarked graves, the ones that made it home, and the ones that are today trying to raise up their families throughout that intergenerational trauma and pain. But we need non-Indigenous people to walk with us. And I don't want um, Indigenous people to have to parade out their hurt every National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I feel like this should be a time for non-Indigenous people to highlight the actions that they're taking and demonstrating that they heard what Indigenous people said in these calls for action, calls for justice, and international reconciliation documents. When you say children, I know that there's a number that legally applies to that. We've had conversations over the years about aging out of the system and the supports that that simply disappear based on your age, not necessarily your ability to look after yourself. Is that still a concern, Michael? It very much is. Um, we as Winnipeg have to do a better job of providing supports to young people as they age out of child welfare so that they don't go right from one system of family separation, CFS, into homelessness and feeling dis- dispossessed of land and, and disconnected from family and dislocated from belonging. If we really think every child matters as Winnipeg, we have statistical child-related problems that we could be working on. We've only got a couple of minutes here, but we had you on on this date last year, and one of the things you said was that you hoped as we move forward that we don't lose momentum, that we keep the momentum going with this movement. How, a year later, what's your take on what's happened? One year later, 
I think that I have been pleasantly surprised by pockets of leadership that I've seen in non-Indigenous systems. I've been seeing a lot of folks taking a serious look at those uh, cost to action, cost for justice I was mentioning, and seeing how they can take legitimate action and use their circle of influence or any privilege that they may happen to have and exert pressure so that Indigenous people can have a better life. And so from the Every Child Matters perspective, that means often doing what we can to support parents that are working to reunify with their children and, of course, supporting young people that are aging out of the child welfare system. So to me, those are the main things that we need to be focusing on as Winnipeg. And so I've been seeing a lot of great progress. There's great leaders that are doing work in Voices, Manitoba's uh, Youth and Care Network. If people don't know who that is, they are leaders that connect and work with young people that are aging out of the system. Michael, you have an endless supply of inspiration and uh, reasons uh, to speak to you, and we appreciate you making time for us on this uh, very day, very special day, uh, hopefully for for all Canadians. Uh, We appreciate you immensely. Thank you very much. And just the last thing that I want to say is that um, I want to acknowledge that I lost my mother, who herself was an Indian residential school survivor last year, and that I do this work in her honour, um, and I celebrate the fact that despite her challenges uh, within the child welfare system, she kept her language her whole life. And so that's one of the actions I'm going to be taking, looking to learn my Swampy Cree in a new language in her honour. We're taking a tour across some of the great conversations that were had today on the Chorus Radio Network on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We've been through Toronto and Hamilton and Winnipeg. Let's stop now in Alberta. You know, the Pope's historic visit to that province, to this country earlier this year, of course, began in Alberta. It was there that Francis issued an apology for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools, calling the forced cultural assimilation of Indigenous children a, quote, deplorable evil and a, quote, disastrous error. Two months later, as we mark this day on September the 30th, how are Indigenous leaders and activists in that province reflecting on that visit and its importance? 770 CHQR and 630 Ched's Sheikh Annam hosted a roundtable that aired today about the impact of the Pope's visit to that province and the apology with Chief Greg Desjardins of the Frog Lake First Nations, Crystal Fraser, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, and Paul Custer, a Calgary writer, former broadcaster, and Indigenous advocate. We're speaking with Paul Custer, who is a writer and a comedian, former broadcaster and indigenous advocate. We're speaking with Dr. Crystal Fraser, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and Arts at the University of Alberta, and Chief Greg Desjardins of Frog Lake First Nation. Um, there's so much to get into. I just uh, I, I want to ask you about the papal visit. And, and Chief, I know you were part of that. I know you had family members with you as you greeted the Pope. Um, just how important was that? What does that signify on Canada's road to truth and reconciliation? Is it a signpost? Is it just something that had to happen? I mean, how, how do you put it into perspective? Well, first of all, Everybody is unique and different in the world. Everybody is entitled to their opinion. Um, I was honored to be there with my mother, who turns 80 tomorrow. And, you know, for for her to hear the apology is important for her healing journey. I know there's many people that were upset. There's many people that didn't like it. But there was many people that 
did enjoy it and did like it. I was in Lake St. Anne. You could feel the love. You know, as human beings, we have to decide when we want to heal. But part of healing is forgiving. And uh, if you ain't going to forgive, you'll stay stuck and you could get sick. You know, but the people visit is only a first step mm-hmm. to reconciliation, to healing. I think about the kids that were found in these unmarked graves and the ones that never got to hear. But I believe that uh, when we heal as a human, our ancestors heal as well. And, and I think it's a, it's a great first step to uh, to reconciliation and only to ask what is next from the Canadian government and the, the church and we'll and we'll we'll get to that in just a second, Doctor Fraser. Um, the papal visit does that end the discussion? Because you know that was a big part when we were doing this throughout the year prior to the papal visit. People I heard from said, "This we need this. We need this apology. It's part of the process of healing." Does that close the door to that component of this path that we're all walking? Um, you know, I. I don't think it closes the door. Um, I actually think maybe it, it opens it more for for some more conversations, more communication. And and so I definitely agree that like a lot of survivors, intergenerational survivors and indigenous communities, um, you know, may have experienced a lot of uh, healing. They may have let go pain by by simply hearing that apology, which you know, on on April 1st from Vatican City and then again here in July at Muscochese. Um, and so I I don't downplay the uh, seriousness um, of of that apology and, and that moment. But, you know, I also think there are bigger conversations to be had, such as, um, you know, how the Pope handled the visit, how the Canadian government handled the visit, you know, uh, paving roads, you yeah, know, the day yeah. before, spending millions of dollars. Um, additionally, some of the words that the Pope said, such as, you know, the Catholic Church needs to investigate what happened. Well, well, we already had a multi-million dollar <laughs> yeah. investigation we called the happened. PRC. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, interestingly, my colleague, uh, Matthew Wildcat at the University of Alberta, he, he wrote a piece, um, suggesting that maybe it's, it's time that Indigenous communities rethink our, our overall relationship with the Catholic Church. Um, and I mean, I, I have also said that in, in relationship to the monarchy. Um, and, and so I think that the Pope's tour was, was, definitely a good thing but um again i think i think it's a starting point paul what about you i mean you watched it all unfold and uh, what, what were your thoughts what were your impressions of it oh boy uh con- conflicting views conflicting views because um i i understand uh the the uh sacredness of that position uh within the catholic church i mean he, he's uh the pope is supposed to be god's uh, representative here on earth so right. that's a that's a powerful position um and i agree with what crystal just said though the um uh the the words that he spoke and i i believe now correct me if i'm wrong um, I think in a way he deflected a little bit when he said, you know, this was just a, uh, uh, a, a percentage or a small, uh, you know, a few bad apples. 
that perpetrated these things. Didn't he say something he along those lines? Some things he did. He definitely did. Yes. And 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 the and the thing is, this was. I mean, it was instituted. Uh, Hand in hand, the the church and the state, they went into uh, this whole thing about residential schools together because Mm -hmm. they saw us, as we all know, they called us savages, they called us heathens, uh, they they treated us as uh, inferiors. And and that was... um, so that that I don't think that flies that, that it was a uh, it was a small number. I, it, it it was a huge number because we had uh, so many of these schools across the country. Now the apology that's I I accept his apology. That's a good start. But where do we go from here? And and I don't want the door to be closed. And I agree with Crystal. I think it opens the door more. And we really have to think now. Where do we go from here in terms of the indigenous community and these institutions like the church, like the monarchy. How do we deal with that? Because this all stems from colonialism. This all comes from somewhere. And, uh, and, and of course, we, we've seen the impacts that it's had within our communities. And, um, but the, the other thing that I find really interesting is uh, the, the royal proclamation and King, uh, I, I think it was King George III at that time, uh, when they came here to Canada, um, they entered into an agreement like they uh, in in their um, uh, in their official records, they recognized us as being sovereign nations with our own languages and that we had to be dealt with as equals. And that was back from 1763. And not a lot of people know that, yeah. that it actually started off on on on, a, on mutual respect. And then, of course, it got. Uh, went uh, side, it went completely somewhere yeah. else. So, and, and so I think people need to uh, realize that we got off on, on the right foot, um, but things went sideways, including with the church. You had a couple of things that you thought were important, Paul, things we need to be turning our attention to as we move forward, um, taking a look where we were, but there's still so much work left to be done. What do we need to be focused on now? Um, oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, There's just so much. Uh, I I was just uh, uh, reading through the Beyond 94. Uh, I don't know if you heard uh, uh, about that, and it's this publication about what has actually been accomplished with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, 94 calls to action. We've only achieved a very small number of those, and it's such a wide-spanning spectrum of hardcore issues that face our communities, like uh, uh, child welfare, um, uh, the, the social ills that still plague our communities and I only have to mention now the the name Saskatchewan because we know what went down uh, on Labor Day weekend with the Sanderson uh, brothers mm-hmm. those those guys were products of of intergenerational trauma because it turned out that miles as we all know now he was abused by his parents then he got taken away and he was abused by his grandparents this is so typical within our communities um, there's a movement called bring bring the children home uh, based out of Saskatchewan that I have uh, uh, participated in and uh, it's it's wonderful um, to, to, to think of bringing our children back to our communities. But you have to think, what are we bringing them back to? Because right. there's still rampant poverty. There's still uh, boil water advisories. There, uh, crystal meth is overtaking a lot of our small communities. So how do you tackle that? Well, that's part of truth and reconciliation and these calls to action. 
Um, the, 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 do- the documents are great, but what is actually being done? Um, and do we solve it by pumping more money? Because sometimes when you pump money into things, it, it goes to administration costs and it just, it just gets watered down. And are we actually, in the end, are we actually helping? And let's end this show on a musical note and an interview from CKNW contributor Eric Chapman today in British Columbia, today on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I don't know if you've caught this doc on Netflix called Rumble, The Indians Who Rock the World. It's uh, the executive producer on it is award-winning guitarist Steve Stevie Salas, who is Indigenous and American. He's played with the likes of Rod Stewart, the Rolling Stones, many others and has had a solo career as well. This one looks into all the different uh, Indigenous artists in America who many, many hid their identities over the years out of out of essentially necessity, guys like Link Ray, another famous musician. Uh, and really, this is all about Salas's exploration of what it meant to be Indigenous in America, but also what it meant to be a rock star and what they contributed as Indigenous, the Indigenous community contributed to music in America, specifically music like the blues that everyone everyone always associates with the struggle of African Americans in the South, but also Indigenous people uh, played a role in that too. Uh, So today, Salas sat down with CKNW Vancouver as contributor Eric Chapman and chatted with him about Indigenous influences on music and the blues. When I was younger, I, I really liked it because obviously I learned how to play guitar. I never took a lesson. So therefore, the blues was sort of a foundation to what, the way I played guitar. Being a Native American guy, my grandfather on my mother's side, who was Apache, used to sit around and play this kind of blues stuff. And songs, it was like, wow, I love that. So the blues was your gateway drug. That's... That's a great way to get into it. <laughs> it is. The way I play guitar. You know, I, play, I was playing with Billy Gibbons uh, last Saturday as a special guest at the, the San Diego Blues Festival. He, I flew out and, and played with him as a, as a guest. And, you know, the first song we played was, um, it was a standard. I can't think of the name of it right now, you know. And, yeah. and it was cool. And, and all the blues fans liked it. But then we kicked into, we kicked into friggin' LaGrange. And it was like, that's a blues song, man, but right. it rocks, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, he's like, and he's singing about, you know, a house they over he's singing about prostitutes. And so, you know, it, 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 it's definitely a gateway to, to many subjects. I'm the slave connection, really, if you really listen, was about people who were were downtrodden, the people who were beaten down, the people who were invisible. So runaway slaves, indigenous people, a lot of the Scottish and the Irish, where the British thought that they were, you know, disgusting, you know, vermin, you know, the way the way white people thought Apaches were were savages, you know, I think the British thought the Scottish were savages. They were like the they were like the white Indians, right? So these guys are all in the States and they're creating um, not just music and style mixing in you know african polyrhythms with with four on the floor from the indigenous powwow beats you know that what they're doing also is they're creating food and they're creating style and they're creating clothing uh, uh that ended up being adopted by everyone else and then the credit was taken for by everybody else as well right you were talking about the you know four on the floor and all that stuff if they're listening to to music or the blues where is that rhythm what should they be listening for 
okay, well, you know, the the, the, the powwow beat, I mean, the, the native beat really is what, it's the heartbeat of the human, it's the heartbeat of the planet, you know. Right? It's it's the heartbeat. It's the heartbeat of the human being. It's the heartbeat of the earth as one. And that's where that beat, that's the four on the floor. You know? So that's just the rhythm of the planet. It's the rhythm of the people, the people's people. Which, of course, goes into the music, because the music is all about whatever that feeling is. Okay, so back to the blues. Yeah. I was always brought up, growing up in San Diego, California. Uh, even later on when I was traveling the world and I started to become a young rock star, you know, because I, I made it really young. I mean, I, I started playing with George Clinton only a couple of years out of high school and Bootsy Collins. And, and then I had a number one record in 1987 with Was Not Was that came out of the blue that, that I was a part of. And, and and then I joined Rod Stewart. And I went giant, you know, then everything, my whole world changed. I was gigantic Madison Square Gardens and private planes and all that madness. I wrote a book about it, actually. But so it changed so fast from that young, at a young age. I was always led to believe since I played with so many famous people in England and I actually got my recording contract in England. I was always led to believe that the blues was, a, was an African-American art form. I just thought it was. The Delta Blues came from the Delta Mississippi as African-Americans. Later on, as I got older, you started to realize that there's a lot of natives that are actually super dark skin. I started to realize people used to see me. I was on the, on the cover of the newspaper in like 1990 or 91 with my girlfriend at the Kentucky Derby. And people thought I was an African-American. I was in Washington, D.C. speaking. I was at the White House yesterday talking. And I was with, with a Sioux Indian named Jason Braveheart. And literally, people didn't know what he was. He thought he was a big black guy. He, I mean, he's, he looked. To me, it looks nothing like a African-American person at all. He's a Sioux Indian. So people just don't know. Tell me, can't you black me? But once you know it, it, it's the truth is right in front of your face. Once you realize it. So I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, and uh, when George Harrison played his first concert away from the Beatles, he played the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Gardens. Okay. Um, I've seen this footage since I was a little kid a million times. He's got Clapton on one side. He's got Ringo Starr behind him. He's got Jim Keltner behind him. He's got um, uh, Leon Russell on the keyboards right there. He's got Klaus Borman on bass. And I never saw the big, gigantic Kiowa Indian, Jesse Ed Davis, who's standing right beside him, wearing, dressed like an Indian, too, on that stage. When I was a little kid, I would have saw him. I would say, hey, there's an Indian on that stage. It was as if he was invisible. Until I went to make Rumble, and I really started getting into it, and I said, holy sh**, all I ever saw was Clapton. 
how did I not see Jesse Ed Davis standing right there? Because when I joined Rod Stewart, I had to play a lot of Jesse Ed Davis's guitar parts. And I used to read his name on the liner notes, and I never knew he was a Native American. I just thought he was some famous guitar player. Played with, played with you know, with uh, John Lennon and, and Elton John and all these people. And I had no idea he was a Native American, and I'm a Native American. When I actually, when I played Madison Square Garden for the first time, I kissed the stage at Soundcheck thinking I might be the first Native American to ever play this stage. Not knowing Robbie Robinson was a Native American who played well already, and Jesse and Davis, and you know, so there's ignorance everywhere until you learn. Uh-huh.